I want to talk about Genesis. Any, anybody interested in Genesis? Are we on three? No, but I'm, 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 I'm now laying the 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 steps to get to three. Um, I want to. Go. Okay. This. So one of the things that we've been looking at is. You know, we're looking at the Genesis story, we've moved it from the flannel graph, we've moved it to the whiteboard, and we're exploring the way that what, how many of us were taught by the flannel graph, what was happening in the garden, really isn't what scripturally was happening. Um, Today I'm going to add one more piece that some of you may be familiar with and, and others, this will be new information. But I want to add one more piece to this as we get ready now to start walking through the Old Testament more. And one of the things that we, I think it's important for us when we pick up the Bible and we begin to read, we all pretty much do this without thinking about it. But I want to put some, something behind it a little bit more. We, we many of us, especially in, when we come at the scriptures from a Western perspective, we pick up the Bible, it starts with Genesis, it ends with Revelation. And we read it like we're reading a novel. With the anticipation that chapter 1 has that hook that takes us to chapter 2, which has the hook that cha- takes us to chapter 3. And characters are being introduced and a, and a plot is starting to unfold or, uh, unfold or a tragedy or whatever that particular book is. We're getting there chapter by chapter as the author brings us along. If we take the Bible and we approach it that way, we're, we're not approaching it the way it was designed. The Bible, the scriptures are a mosaic of various interactions between Yahweh and humanity. And sometimes it's an interaction between Yahweh and the celestial. But there, it's a mosaic. We get, the, we get brought into a scene and that scene unfolds before us and a description is given and something comes out of that. It doesn't necessarily mean when I move from chapter 13 to chapter 14, I'm still in the same scene. The story just changed. And of course, I I appreciate the fact that somebody took all the time to put chapter and verse numbers in. It does help a lot. But it's also problematic in that it makes the book seem like it's a uniform progression. It makes it seem like if this book has 32 chapters, then it's this whole story from chapter 1 to chapter 32, instead of realizing that it's God expressing pieces of himself, pieces of humanity, pieces of his interaction, and he's doing it in the context of the people that he's writing about, or not that he's writing, but the people that he's interacting with in the moment that he's interacting with them. So we have people in the scriptures from the earliest of humanity and Yahweh interacting with them. We have people that existed roughly 2,000 years ago in ancient Israel when God became flesh What did that story look like? Well, but we also have 
the future people, usins, and indirectly, we're in the book. But directly, we're not in the book. The book, the scriptures, were not written by ancient people with you in mind. The writers of scripture were trying to express this interaction they just had with God and what it felt like, what it looked like, what were the ramifications of it? How did I get myself into that place? How did I get out of that place? What is the story that's being told? They were trying to tell it from their perspective in their language. And of course, as we've talked about before, language for all that it brings with it that's beneficial, language also brings with it a certain level of problems when we're trying to move from one language to another. You know, years ago when I was, uh, you know, when I, when I was brought up, I, and at first had, I don't think I'd been a Christian a week, a person handed me a Schofield Bible and said, this is all you'll ever need. And I took my Schofield Bible <laughs> and I walked out and it began this amazing journey that's still happening today, although I've long since parted company with Mr. Schofield. Right. We kind of hit some bumps along the way. And like Mike's poem, I finally had to say, Mr. Schofield, I'm kind of done with you. I'm, I'm done with your notes. I'm not done with the scripture, but I am done with your notes. They were his notes, and he thought they were good notes. I just couldn't get on board with his notes after a period of time. So the language created an issue. Many of us started with the King James Bible. My Schofield reference Bible was in King James. With all the these, the thous, and I learned how to transpose and read it the way it was written, but speak it all in English, modern English. And I could do that on the fly. I didn't, I didn't even think about it. You know, you just converted the these, the thous, the thusins, the usins. You just did it. You didn't even think. Yeah. <laughs> so language has a place. So when we're reading the scriptures, language, even though what we have, whether it's English, whatever version you're using, you know, English standard or American standard or whatever version you're using, that has been brought from some other language into English. Jesus did not speak English. The ancient writers did not speak English. They spoke and wrote a different language. So along the way, that's been brought. Now, people will say, well, that's why the Bible is such a flawed book and you can't trust it because everybody's been writing it. How do you know who's right? I mean, this one writes it, that one writes it. We've got this translation, that translation, and that. I mean... It's all probably equally wrong, is the assumption that we make. When in fact, the amazing thing about the Bible is it's based on, or not, let me say it this way. We have the ability to go back to ancient manuscripts that are still alive and compare ancient manuscripts to what we look at today when we read the Bible. And with surprising clarity, it's still the same. We can go and read the Septuagint 
which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. We can go back and read the Septuagint, and there are certain words that you'll see that get used there, and you find that those are the same words that were in the ancient Hebrew manuscripts that we found when the Dead Sea Scrolls were, were found. So whole pages of the scriptures as we hold them are available in original manuscript, and they're still saying the same thing, keeping in context that when we move from one language to another language, every language doesn't have all the same words. So, you know, I was taught that, you know, don't ever change the word of God. You know, if you, you know, you know, the whole thing about, you know, if you add or subtract and all that stuff. But, but then, then my first trip to Brazil, we're, we're using a Portuguese Bible, right? Gisilda, it's, good, it's so good to see you, speaking of Portuguese. So we're using this Bible, and I'm sitting there comparing, and I realize between the English and the Portuguese, as people are translating the Portuguese for me, that there are certain words that don't move from English to Portuguese or Portuguese to English clearly. So what's the translator do? You find the best word in your present language that's going to express the original word in that language. So the, the, the battle for the translator is being as concise as they can, but they don't always have the same words. So you're going to have, they have to finesse that. So what do we do? It's been said, I mean, I, I, I think I heard Bill Johnson use this the first time and I've heard others use it, but you know, it, all the carpenters in the room, if I tell you to cut me 10 boards that are nine feet, three inches, you don't cut the first board with the tape, nine, three, feet, three inches, and then just set that board on the next board and strike a line and cut that, and on the next board, strike a line and cut that, because it's growing. And by the time you cut the last board, it's not nine feet, three inches, or whatever you're supposed to be cutting it. So anytime that we continually use the most present as the mark for the next thing I'm going to do, I'm, I'm getting off course the further I go, which is why it's amazing that we still have the ancient manuscripts that we can go back to the original and compare the original to the present. Compare the original text to the present. Compare the original historical context to what I'm trying to make this verse say today. And I would say that and this is just my opinion, but um, that one of the disservices that those of us in the evangelical slash Pentecostal charismatic tongue talkers, I mean, the list is pretty long, but all of us that are in that camp, one of the disservices that we've created, I believe, is, and I'm, and I'm a product of it, which is, sorry about that, is, Anybody can pick up the Bible and say, I know what it's saying, and now I'm going to do my YouTube video, and I put my thing out there, and it can be textually wrong, it can be contextually wrong, it can be all this stuff, but I get my audience, I get my video, and people are like, oh man, did you hear what Robert said? Whoa, that was amazing. Whoa, I just got goosebumps with everything he was saying. Well, it was all wrong. <laughs> I'm glad you got goosebumps out of it. I made money out of it. But it was all wrong. 
It was just me running my mouth. When we came, where the, what the denominational groups have done, which they have their own filter, so I'm not saying this is that they've not had their places, but they don't allow just anybody to pick up the Bible and claim to be the teacher-preacher with all the info. No, you're required to go to seminary. You actually need to know what the heck you're talking about before you start running your mouth, at least within the parameters of that particular denomination, right? But I think that that has actually preserved the contextual view of Scripture better than some of us in the evangelical world that will make any verse say anything we want it to say because I just think that's what the Holy Spirit is saying. All right? So, when we're back to Genesis, there, there is... Um, in 1928, in Syria, there was an archaeological discovery which actually some of the things that I've already talked about have come out of stuff I've, I've read from that archaeological discovery. Some of you may be familiar with this, you may not. But there was a, there's a site that's been found in Syria. And the name of the site is Ugaric. And it's an actual location. The archaeologists found it. And a couple decades after it was first found, they began to excavate and do the archaeological digs. And what they found there, which is amazing, they found a library of tablets that were over 1,400 tablets. Oh, they actually have it up there. Thank you, Rodney. I I jammed him up on that today. I think he got it at 9.30. Over 1,400 tablets that are written in alphabetical or alphabetic script. And that a, that's a, was an amazing find. So now they've been able to go back and start actually unpacking the script. And the Ugaric script and the ancient Hebrew script is almost identical, which has given us, at the time that it was written, and the writers, it's given us a huge insight into, into our, own, our own scriptures today. So, um, so there's this interesting thing when you read through the and and the language itself is referred to. That's that's the site or the the city site, and the language is actually this regeritic um, is the language. So when they start reading through these manuscripts, and I think, I think maybe this will start to bring on some light. As they start reading through these manuscripts, there are several things that happen. They found, one, that under this group of people, when you read their material, they had a god named El. They had a god... named Baal, and they had a divine council. El, Baal, and a divine council. Now, I think most of us in this room know that El appears throughout the scripture 
as a name of God throughout the Old Testament. We also know that this name here created a bunch of problems for a bunch of folk in the Old Testament. This idea of the divine counsel, I want to take us back to what I said when we looked at Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27, the, or is it 27 and 28, where, where we have the verse, let us make man in our image. And I said to you then that I had used that verse as a proof text for the Trinity, which I no longer hold that that's a correct use of that verse, that it was actually talking about a council that was making having a discussion prior to humanity being created. So in Genesis, we have, if you accept the premise of what I said in the, that verse in Genesis of the council not being Father, Son, Holy Spirit talking, but actually being a council talking, God is one. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were there. But there's this divine council. And, you know, when, uh, I don't even know when I did it now, but... There's various verses that talk about this council. In these writings, there's a divine council. Now, I just found that fascinating. And that the languages are extremely close in that the Ugaric site is, is right north of Israel. So we have two cultures who were in very close proximity in the area who had a shared written alphabet and language and had some sharing of how they saw God. So the the chief deity is El. Baal was considered in the Ugaric writings, Baal was considered to be a... um, Administrator wouldn't be quite quite the right word. He, it was considered a co-ruler, but of lesser degree. In in the Ugaritic writing, El is is uh, the highest, but he shares authority, shares power with Baal, and the two of them have both have a place where they live, and. Then there's this divine council that makes the decisions that's affecting humanity. Um, And this council is referred to, in in these writings, is referred to in case that might look familiar. So the divine council under these ancient writings The council was the sons of El. Which, in Scripture, Old Testament, we have the the sons of God. And we've we've looked at that. We're going to look at that again. I'm only... Oh, man. Somebody stole five minutes. I'm only trying to lay a foundation today, and that even isn't going to be complete. I'm only going to go so far here. I'm sorry. We'll get to it next week. Um, I don't know about that. (laughs) So what we see in the Old Testament, in the biblical text, is that 
Paul gets put in with and gets put uh, with other words and becomes uh, references sites through the Old Testament. So if it's Baal Prior um, is, is one that we're going to talk about next week, that what they did, when you see that in the Old Testament, what that represents is a site where worship was taking place and it would have been worship of Baal. So that's how they would label it. And it would be a high place. And oftentimes it would be a place close to water. And we're going to explore that more next week, why those, both of those are really important. Um, so there's three... There's, we have this three tier of authority and, and, uh, let's see, did it use the same word? Yeah, so we have El is supreme in, 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 um, in the Ugaric view, Baal is actually over here alongside El, not underneath as far as authority is concerned. And then we have this divine council. And under the divine council in the, the Ugaric writing, under the divine council is um, what's referred to as as the Malachim, which in Hebrew language and Old Testament language is translated angels. And what we've already been through, so I'm not going to cover it again today, but any place in the, New, in the Old Testament where you see sons of God, it's not talking about angels. It doesn't translate angels. It translates Elohim. And when we see angels, the word angel in the Old Testament, most of the time, the Hebrew is Malachim, not Elohim. So there's a distinction in the Old Testament, in, in the Old Testament between angels and the other gods, small g, but as we talked about how the Old Testament carries it out and refers to it as Elohim, and so we have to deal with that. We have, we have to, in our mind, make, make this start to make this shift that I'm not talking poly, polytheistically from the standpoint that there's many gods all of relatively equal position. There's one God. Yahweh. And he gets, this, he gets the distinction of being Yahweh Elohim, which means he's the supreme God. There is no God higher than him. There is no God equal to him. And all, all, everything else was created by him. He is, he's the one that is eternal with no beginning and no end. Everything else we talk about has come out of him. He has created it, and he created it for a purpose, just like he created us for a purpose. And, uh, and he has a plan in mind. None of us are here by accident. None of us are here 
either those of us sitting in this room or previous generations or generations to come. We're not here just by happenstance and intercourse. We're here because Yahweh has a plan for humanity, and we're going to explore that more next week um, and the weeks after as we start to move through Genesis. And what, what I want us, hopefully, in the next, um, in the next couple weeks, uh, what I want us to be able to see is um, there's multiple places as we start to move out from the garden and we're not going to jump over the moving out part. I'm just trying to lay this final piece of foundation. But as humanity starts to move out from the garden, there is a certain conflict that gets established from the very beginning, from the whole idea of of Adam and Eve, the deception, what happened there. That is, yes, that is where sin came in. That is where humanity now is under the influence of sin. But it's more than that. And the, the evangelical flannel graph story we've told was that at some point, Eve was deceived, sin came in, and once sin came in, I just started doing bad things as a human. And so the whole problem is the bad things as a human being I do, and Jesus came so that my bad things can be covered up. He did do that. But he did more than that. And what I want us to begin to see, and, and these writings, these ancient writings help, and, and I'm going to refer to these along the way because there's other places they'll come in. But what we begin to see right from the beginning is that God's idea was he's creating first an unseen family. The, 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 um, the divine council. And he calls them sons. He calls them sons of God. So he has an unseen family. But he also has a seen family, which is humanity. Because his goal was on the earth to have this place where he comes and walks in the garden with humanity and has relational, uh, has a relational um, time with them, that there's a purpose, there's a plan, there's, he has something he wants to accomplish, and he's created man that we could be co-laborers, co-partners, sons with him on the earth to accomplish this. And of course, that got fouled up, but his plan hasn't changed. And we're working on that plan right now. So there's the seen and there's the unseen. Both are there, and from the very beginning, there's this cosmic, if I can use that term, there's this cosmic battle that gets set into motion by the unseen sons of God and how that starts to play out in the life of the seen sons of God. And we watch that that start to unfold. And when we can see this, at least this is how it's helped me, when I start to see this, then all of a sudden when I come against or come up against scriptures where you're like, God, did you just wake up in a really bad mood today? I mean, you were like kicking butt all over the place. I mean, like, you didn't even like just kill that dude like you killed the goats, you killed the cows, you killed, you blew up the rocks. I mean, you like, do you don't want, I don't want one rock standing on top of another. You're like, what in the world? And we read that through the novel view. We read that through 
a, a, a lens, that's not really what's happening. And what I'm hoping we can begin to see is that these, these places where, through the Old Testament, major confrontations happened, but many of those confrontations were happening more in the unseen realm than they were in the seen realm. And because man had stepped away from his rightful place, he didn't, he had given up a place of authority that he was supposed to have where he was supposed to be managing that. And so in a certain respect, the unseen realm got free reign on the earth because of what we gave up. And so some of these battles aren't as, um, I don't know what would be the right word, but they, they make, for at least in my mind, they make more sense. And, you know, when we, especially, and we're, we're weeks out from this. Uh, this will probably be Christmas next year. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's just a lot to cover. But when we get into the Nephilim, when we get into the Tower of Babel, this is a huge conflict that's taking place. Yeah. It's just not a Bible story about some guys that went out one day and started throwing dirt up in the air and going, let's make a tower. And the real conflict that we're going to be looking at is this whole thing with the giants. We've got to deal with the giants. And why is God like hardcore after them? We're going to deal with that. But today, that's all the time we have. <laughs> and and this, this, this was in the Ugaric writings. I saw it myself. It was the same in the Hebrew as it was in the Ugaritic. Bless you, because I'm, I'm, I know I'm Russian, but... We'll, we'll get to it all, I promise. I actually want to slow down because there's some really, really neat stuff. Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for just the testimonies. Uh, Lord, we continue just to declare freedom and health to Micah. Lord, we continue to just your provision for the Turnahan family, all that's taking place there. Father, we just bless them in, in the fullness of who you are. And we stand against every place. The principalities and powers have chosen to come and afflict that family. We stand against the spirit of torment and the spirit of sickness and call you down that you must set that young man free. You cannot hold him or afflict him. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Hallelujah.